Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Welcome to the Kyle Coster Show with me, Kyle Coster. Today's episode is a little bit different. It's going to be your basic interview. It's going to touch on sports, pop culture, media, all those things. Um, I spoke with Liam McCune. Uh, I see him every day online in our Slack. He's a young writer for The Big Lead. Uh, and he's fantastic. He's got great insights on what's going on, um, both on the court and off. And we had a freewheeling conversation, which you can hear now. I'd love to be, I'd love to go back and be like a history professor or uh, a teacher in high school and just speak in broad strokes and be like, yeah, you know, Egypt, anciently, ancient Egypt, there was a lot going on there, um, you know, <laughs> with the royal family, uh, you know, the restoration, kind of like when you, you don't have to do any research, you just kind of like sum it up with these like spaghetti at the wall things. Like there was a lot going on. It was, it was very complicated, what have you. It saves you to do all the research. Uh, and I think that's actually kind of like a good device to use is to just say, Oh, it's really complicated. There's a lot of moving pieces. Uh, if you say that nobody like facts check facts checks you on that. It's just like, Oh yeah. Well, they says it's complicated. It's definitely, it's definitely true. You can't argue that it is not complicated. 
you can argue how complicated it is, but you certainly can't argue that, you know, there's just a lot going on. No, absolutely. And I was thinking about that last night when uh, a, an analyst did this, did this thing. One team was on the run on a run in the NCAA tournament. And the analyst was like, got to get a timeout here. Got to get a timeout here. And I'm sitting there. I'm thinking, has anybody ever gone back and really thought about when the person says that they have to get a timeout, whether that's the right coaching decision, or is it just something you say and everybody at home is like, oh yeah, well, it, it, it makes sense because it's like, you can say, you can say that at any time. Like nobody's going to say, no, you're wrong. Yeah, no, it's definitely that. It's one of those classic things that, you know, I'm not saying that the broadcaster in question didn't have anything to say or that he didn't actually think that, but in lieu of any actual commentary to provide, you can always, it's one of those go-to phrases that you can just say, and you know, nobody will really disagree with you unless, I mean, there are some outstanding circumstances where they might, like if your team is up 30 and you're like, oh, got to get a timeout, like some Jim Boylan down 35 with 10 seconds to go calling a timeout type deal. That might be right for disagreement, but otherwise, I think that belongs in like that that uh, that shoebox of things that you can pull out sometimes. I would I would be so all over that if I was uh, on air. I would come up with like fifteen or twenty things that I just said, uh, and I rotated kind of like an e bombs uh, soundboard that they were basically pushing me only uh, with sentient thought. <laughs> Can't let him get to his spot. Can't let him get to his spot. You could say that about, and what's so great about commentary like that is you can say that about literally any player can't mm-hmm. let them get to his spot. That just means you keep them from the spot where they're the most effective. So there is no like uniqueness in that analysis. It's just looking at two human beings who are in a matchup and being like, okay, well, this universal truism is something I can apply over there without uh, taking any of the specifics in, into, into the thought process. Well, we were just talking about painting with broad strokes. This would be an easy thing to be like in relevance to this discussion. And also it belongs in the previous like grouping that we're just talking about where it's easy to be good. It's hard to be great. It's easy to be good at broadcasting because you can just say stuff like that just, and nobody will disagree with you. And it's probably true most of the time, but it's also not, you know, it doesn't take a very smart person to think up those things, but to be great, you use those things in different ways and explore and kind of push the boundaries of what those things actually mean. So Liam, I think the first question I, I kind of have for you is, is I welcome you into the podcast. Um, you grew up in Massachusetts as a big sports fan. And I'm kind of curious what that's like for someone who is in their mid twenties growing up in Boston, loving sports, feeling as though there's almost this infrastructure in place uh, between Bill Simmons and between David Portnoy and the explosion of Barstool. Is there some sort of like pressure or push to go into sports media? And it, it, cause it's largely been the hotspot where a lot of these things that have turned into, you know, the most popular uh, of the two ways of doing it, uh, have grown. Did you feel that pressure coming, coming out of Massachusetts, being a Boston fan? And, and what is that like? I think it's, it's actually interesting. It's less pressure. It almost, it's almost the opposite of pressure that the fact that I was seeing these guys do it made me be like, Oh, wow, I can really actually do that and not have to go to the best journalism school in the country and become a beat writer for one of the local teams and then slowly work my way up in that sort of thing. Like there's a certain amount of, I think when the pressure comes in, 
is really in like my style of writing is that Simmons and Portnoy and Barstool and like all the other stuff that you were talking about sort of separated themselves because their writing was different. And so I don't have many different things to say. So it's about the way that I can express those because, you know, in sports media, there's only so many truly unique takes you can pump out, especially in today's day and age where every other take is regurgitated on social media in some way, shape or form. It's about the manner in which you express that. And that's how I feel the pressure is that I want to be as like, be able to tie in all of the statistics and anecdotes that Simmons can in a way that's extremely enjoyable to the reader while also borrowing comedic elements from like the barstool uh, writing style where they kind of, they bring in like lots of like Simmons started it with his pop culture references and that sort of thing, but barstool is more constant and current. And so that's where I feel that pressure that you speak of is that being from Boston, there are certain things that people expect of Boston bloggers other than blatant homerism, which I lean into regularly because it's fun and it kind of helps play part of the bit. But there is that pressure of like, if I'm going to express something, people don't actually want to hear about Boston homerism. They want to hear Boston homerism expressed in a way that makes them laugh. Yeah, I think that that makes sense. Um, it, it's just different because I'm not that much older than you, uh, but I kind of came up at a different time uh, when Jason McIntyre started this site, he started it because it had the sensibility of a newspaper writer and he worked at a magazine. Um, and that's kind of what people aspired to do when they were in college uh, with me. It was either go to a local TV station or a newspaper was still this viable, important thing that kind of formed people's opinions about how you should write, how you should cover stuff. So when you kind of like, look at a future in in sports journalism when you're in college which you were a few years ago what type of model are you looking toward are you looking toward the newspapers are you looking toward like the regional television shows what is kind of like the thing you aspire to be on like the purely professional uh model well i think when i was in college that you sort of asked what I looked looked to, right? Well, I looked to the stuff that I engage with every day, which is an entirely online media. When I was at Fordham, I didn't, I wasn't reading newspapers. I didn't even read the school newspaper, even though I wrote a basketball blog for them. I would look at it online. And so coming from that angle, like, and it's not even just like I'm making a point of looking at things online because I think that's better or whatever. I obviously, like I grew up my like half my family worked at the Boston Globe for their entire life. I understand the value of the newspaper industry. And I grew up getting Sports Illustrated and ESPN magazines and stuff like that. But on a day-to-day basis, which is how kind of like everything you do on a day-to-day basis slowly builds you up into like what you are and who you are and what how you think and what you want to be, it's all entirely online. And so from a professional aspect, I mean, now that I'm in the industry, I think the lines are just much more blurred people use the skills that they wrote like they gained in newspaper and magazine stuff and apply it almost seamlessly to an online media without really missing a beat you could read something on the athletic or something that just as well could have appeared in the on the sports page of the new york post or whatever and there wouldn't really be that much of a difference so it's less about for me and my age and you know at this point in my career it's not divide it up like that it's more about just like trying to become because one of the good things about the advent of online journalism is that there is a lot of really 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 good writing 
easily available for anybody and everybody to read. And so all I really want to do at this point is to become the kind of writer where people read that and they're like, that was good. That I think it's a, it's a low bar, but it's also a high bar, you know? Yeah, I think, I think you're exactly right. Because I think that when people used to get their newspaper in the morning, uh, there was this tacit understanding that everybody who worked for the newspaper had reached this set level of competence as a writer and Mm -hmm. number one knew what they were talking about number two was able to use words in a way that that showcased that they had some sort of mastery of them and i think that's you know because competition was really really stiff and like the gatekeepers kind of negatively kept a lot of people away but positively preserved the quality by by preventing anyone from the bleacher section to come in and, and spot off uh, a, a column, which would probably not be entirely fair. Um, but I think now you, where you can go any, where you can go anywhere, you are kind of searching for something that shows quality. And like you said, it's either, it's either comedy, it's, uh, it's either a unique angle. It's either you're a, a big personality yourself Um and another option is just to make it stand out, to have someone be like, oh, this was an interesting piece, or this person took the landscape of what's going on in sports and or pop culture and kind of crystallized it for me in 700 words to a point where I'm like, okay, I'm going to trust that this person has at least a decent understanding of, of what's going in in a lot of areas. So I want to go back and check out their coverage. Yeah, that's basically it. I mean- the only thing I don't want people to think is that I don't know what I'm talking about. And there would be times where I don't know what I'm talking about because I am only a person and cannot contain multitudes of knowledge about everything, but it's about, you know, making sure that I do enough in terms of my own research that if somebody who knows a lot about what I'm talking about reads what I wrote and they decide that I know what I'm talking about, even if they disagree on my actual opinion of the matter, that to me indicates that I at the very least succeeded in what, I want to do as a writer. And I think that that is something that, I don't know, it's not like it's gone away, but it's kind of like what you said, right? With the newspaper stuff is that because there was such a limited grouping of people who could write about this in a published forum, that everybody assumed and knew that these people knew what they were talking about and they were all right. The people in these positions got there because they knew what they were talking about. Now that everybody can write about anything, you do not need to know what you're talking about to have words published on a public forum, which doesn't bother me at all. Everybody can, I mean, who cares? But that's how I would see it as the, like, the, uh, the way to stand out would be to make sure that you are, in fact, the smartest guy in the room, or at least appear to be. So LeBron James is out indefinitely with a high ankle sprain. And the Lakers season is very much in question. Um, We're all of the mindset that he's going to come back and he's going to be able to play before the playoffs. And he's going to be somewhat close to LeBron James in the playoffs. Um, But I think this is such an interesting story because LeBron James is 36. We're waiting for father time to come uh, tap him on the shoulder and do kind of the uh, Pennywise from the sewer. Come with me. And I think, I think that this really opens up an opportunity for him that he's never had in his career. And that is to be the triumphant return from injury guy 
the gutting it out through pain in the playoffs. And we all know how much he loves to emote with his face. We're going to set a record for grimaces that hasn't been seen uh, outside of McDonald's. And I think I'm so excited about this. And I really wanted to talk to you about this, Liam, because I think that LeBron James limping his way to another title is going to change the conversation around him and potentially change his legacy. So I'm presenting that idea to you broadly, and I want to see if you want to throw some water on it or you want to throw some gas on it to get me even more excited. I'll throw a little water on it to start. I think that no matter what happens, let's assume all things equal, LeBron is limping around, but everybody else on the team, anybody important is healthy, and that includes Anthony Davis. Anthony Davis in his full powers is a walking double-double, can put up 30, 40 points without breaking a sweat. Dude is ridiculous. And people were using his presence to take away from LeBron's last championship, and that's when he was fully healthy and doing the normal thing that LeBron, we expect of LeBron. So if he is fully healthy and taking a certain load off of LeBron, which will have to happen if LeBron is out there limping around, then it's going to be, I think the conversation will be more about what it means for Anthony Davis's legacy than what it means for LeBron's legacy. Now, to throw a little gas on it, you are right. LeBron has never had that moment. The 2015 Cleveland championship was awesome and exciting, but there wasn't actually any physical trial that LeBron had to go through other than the grueling aspect of playoff basketball. There was no, you know, I mean, there was him almost breaking his hand when he tried to yam it on Draymond Green at the end of game seven there, but that only happened for, that was with two minutes left, not even. So him having the moment where everybody realizes that this inhuman gigantic muscular man who seems born to play the game of basketball can in fact hurt himself like we all do and have done out on whatever field or court that we choose to be on and then he still manages to win anyway it humanizes him to a point where the conversation will change slightly i don't think it changes much in terms of his grander uh, grander standing and the all-time NBA legacy tiers or anything like that. He needs to win more rings than Jordan for that conversation to ever shift. See, that's interesting because I think that there's a very decent argument to be made that LeBron James has won the two hardest NBA titles in history, uh, where he carried the Cavs uh, back from 3-1. And then last year, if you give credence to the bubble playoffs were the hardest, I think in a way you could say that that's probably true in ways that we can't understand from the outside, but as hard as last year was, I think that you need to consider this year to be already more difficult because there was no off season. Uh, They were coming off an even larger break before they went into the bubble. Their, their bodies were on this cycle that they, nobody was used to already. Um, So the Lakers were already at a significant, significant disadvantage going into this year because of virtually no time to heal. And then you have the Davis injury and then you have the James injury and you don't know how those two guys are going to come back. And they obviously can't win without both of them. One of those players is good enough to carry the Lakers to a championship. Um, But if that's LeBron, you're talking about a degree of difficulty that in my mind would be even higher than the first one he won with the Cavs, which in my mind was probably the hardest of all time. So I just don't know how the, the Jordan versus LeBron conversation looks when you really consider path to the title, what they were able to over, overcome. And it just doesn't seem like James, yes, famously with the Cavs. I mean, 
the first 10 years of his life, it felt like or of his career kind of felt like he was carrying people. And then he was vilified for joining up with people. So he wouldn't have to carry the load anymore. And then he was carrying again in Cleveland. And then he was criticized for going to the Lakers where he wouldn't have to carry all the load. So it's like, he can't win. And it's almost like we don't ever acknowledge when things are hard for him anymore, because he's kind of yo-yoing between the best scenario and one of the worst. I think that's a really interesting point. Actually. I never thought about it in that regard because I think the only way that the perception of LeBron James and the conversation surrounding him alters in any dramatic manner is if he overcomes every single obstacle thrown into his way in a way. And those obstacles are indisputably unarguably monumental obstacles. So getting hurt would definitely count as one going up against a Western conference gauntlet this year with a lot of really good teams at the top would count as another one whatever his finals opponent would be, I suppose is a, you know, we'll save that for future hypotheticals, but if he wins that while hobbling around, maybe without a fully healthy Davis or at least a, you know, hobbled Davis, then that, I mean, not even Skip Bayless could argue against that. Nobody could argue that it was an extreme, like the previous two titles you mentioned, people can pick apart like, Oh, how hard was the bubble? Blah, blah, blah. You know, he had Kyrie in 2015, blah, blah, blah. There there are certain elements of it to pick apart. The only way that the conversation changes in any significant manner is if there is an argument that people can't pick apart, even if they try really, really hard. And that's a reality that we could see very soon. Yeah. And to, to the larger point, I, I, I guess I haven't done the focus groups on this, but I would imagine that people would agree that James has had it more difficult for several of his potential finals runs than Jordan ever had it. Um, I don't know if that's a controversial thing to say. It seems self-evident to me. What's your take on that? Um, I think my take is that the East was better when Jordan was there. So the actual path to the finals was probably a little bit easier for LeBron, but that I think only really applies with his last Miami title and his three Cleveland appearances in the second half of his, or the second Cleveland stint. I think in terms of finals opponents, LeBron beating the Warriors after they went 72 and nine is more individually impressive than any of the finals wins Jordan had as a collective. I couldn't say. What about the media aspect of this? As we're going to dive in every, every sports story has a media story. Um, That's on my business card, actually, Mike, which is made of bone. (laughs) Paul Allen's again. Um, What happens to the take sphere if this, if this occurs? Like we went for a long time without some real juicy takes because of the pandemic, right? Uh, It kind of put a damper and made things a little bit more dour. And last NBA's season was so weird because it was in the bubble. Yes. When the Lakers were finally able to win, it was kind of like the Lakers won. I don't remember it being this multi-week discussion of everything. It kind of came and went quietly i think with the world returning to normal which is fantastic by the way and how much more normal it's looking to be by the time the nba finals roll around what happens to the morning shows if lebron james the new lebron james does this where does the conversation shift 
who is going to still be on the Jordan block and who might change their mind. And I think it's so interesting. I think it's so interesting to have this conversation because we've been having it, thankfully not us that much on the big lead, but as, as a whole, everybody has been having it for a long time. And I don't think the actual accomplishments as they go over time have never been particularly close. The Jordan apologists and believers have always been able to talk about the championships, right? Mm -hmm. LeBron wins his fifth. It's six to five and he's not done. So I know that we live in a time where it's like, you just hang on to the one number and even if proven wrong or or whatever, or it's even weaker. It's your, it's your one argument and you refuse to be like pliable and malleable to new information, but it's really not that much of a Trump card anymore. So I think that they actually is for now, it would be time that you actually have that conversation. You could have some serious debate over it. And I think it's a real thing that people would start doing uh, and it wouldn't seem so contrived. Yeah, I actually agree completely with you. I think that, um, over the last five years, ever since LeBron's 3-1 win over the Warriors, everybody has been pretty set in stone about where they fall on this debate. Maybe it was because of like the calendar and kind of when the NBA Finals fell or the fact that they went up against a Heat team that was falling apart at the end. But LeBron's most recent championship did not move the needle in any regard for any of the on-screen sports arguments about LeBron versus Jordan. Everybody basically either used it for or against their current argument. If the circumstance or the hypothetical that we're putting forward comes to be, then I think people start to change. I think we see bigger names start to flip over onto the other side of that debate. And it will be that flipping, which it could be like, I think, you know, if we're talking limping his way to a championship is the level of singular event that could cause people to make that flip, then making the flip is what becomes the topic of conversation. It no longer becomes who is actually the best of all time, Jordan or LeBron, or the greatest of all time. It becomes about who you thought before this championship and then why you think that might change afterwards. So the conversation, the substance of the conversation is generally the same, but the angle at which it is attacked is different. You're right. It presents a very myopic, uh, unique scenario to present your opinion on this by making it about you by making it about, I have decided and I have changed my mind. So it's not so much even the players anymore. It's about, like you said, the pundit having this come to Jesus moment where they're finally ready to admit that maybe they're going back on the other side of the the pendulum. Because I think if you can frame the story around your character that you're playing, uh, that's just added content on top of the initial already great content. Uh, and, and frankly, I'd love to see it. I, I would, I would really love, love to see it. And I think honestly with LeBron, anything that he does is going to be fantastic for business. He is in all the times I've been covering stuff on the internet, 15 years, God rest my soul. My brain is very smooth, but he is the best blank canvas. Uh, and he's the widest canvas to paint with your takes and it's super interesting. And no matter what goes down uh, over this next stretch is going to be fascinating. I actually fear slightly that if LeBron continues on this path and eventually supersedes Jordan in number of championships won or at least equals him, then the LeBron-Jordan discussion suffers 
in regards to how much content can be mined out of it. Because if you want to look at Tom Brady right now, the man has won more championships than any quarterback in history. And the only people who don't think that he's the best quarterback to ever play the game hate him irrationally. And there are plenty of people who hate, who hate LeBron irrationally too. But regardless of which side you fall on the debate, there is a legitimate debate there between Jordan and LeBron. I think so anyway, is that I've probably fallen on the LeBron side if you held a gun to my head, but ultimately there are actual arguments to be had. But if LeBron undisputedly becomes the best basketball player to ever play by accumulating all the accolades that he has, the statistics and the championship rings, then where goes that debate? Where goes the content? It's a little, I don't know, like, you know, Imagining a future without LeBron Jordan debates is, you know, probably healthier for everybody, including me, and would encourage fresh content to be churned up and used on the morning shows and what have you. But at the same time, the LeBron Jordan debate has one, is one that has dominated the basketball discussion sphere for basically as long as I've been aware enough to understand what that basketball discussion sphere is. So I don't know what the other side of that looks like, and that's fascinating to me. Another topic I wanted to take your temperature on is the NFL rights deals came out uh, and it was, they've, the NFL rights deals were covered with great excellence uh, by experts in the field who are not named Kyle Coster. Uh, and they're all doing great work um, for understanding that. Um, I think the conversation I wanted to have, that's kind of more the layman's approach to this is this idea that, with all these streaming services getting a game, networks widening out, more broadcasts on Nickelodeon thought to be in the future and more experimentation for other outlets to get a game and more appetite to try new things. I wanted to run this idea by you. Okay. Wouldn't it be really interesting if they gave The Ringer a game or they gave the athletic a game or if they gave barstool a game. And if that was just a secondary broadcast, so you could watch the game on the rights holder, this would be an additional broadcast, an alternate feed that would also be cooked into whatever additional revenue, whatever they wanted to sell it. You could break this off. You could sell that, sell this as its new entity. You could figure out the revenue splits. Let's say that all makes sense for everybody involved. And we're just viewing this as kind of like a creative editorial decision. Would you not want to watch a game that you don't have any interest in? Uh, that's a blowout. Wouldn't you want to see what these outlets do creatively and how they look different? Um, and another thing I think that you could do with this is give a famous director or a famous producer, let them do a football game. Like I, I I'm, I'm serious. Like let Quentin, let Quentin Tarantino direct a football game. What is Quentin Tarantino's football game going to look like? What is, what is Matt Weiner's football game going to be like? I mean, I think I just am so curious about if you really wanted to get wild with this stuff, if you put the presentation of NFL football in some creative hands, 
and came to some sort of deal that, look, we're not going to make you look bad. This is just going to be our take on the vision. Wouldn't you want to see that? I absolutely would. And for two reasons, each separate to the different hypotheticals you threw up. From the director side of things, if you just gave it to a creative and you were just like, go crazy with the broadcast, that's fascinating. I think there's so much potential in terms of the pre and post game and halftime rollouts, graphics, transitions, all that stuff. There's so much potential for somebody who really understands how to manipulate film to make something that looks very cool and is appeasing to a very wide audience. I don't really see a downside because I don't think that like, because they're not going to mess with the fundamental aspect of like camera views and angles on the football field. I don't think that is what would happen if you gave the keys to George Miller. He wouldn't have all the cameras behind the quarterback just to see what would happen. That would usually say the same. It's about what you see around the game that is bursting to the seams with creative potential for any sort of director. Now, in terms of getting brands their own broadcast, that would be fascinating to me for one primary reason, is that if it goes along with a regular NFL broadcast and each of the brands that you listed would have their broadcast tailored very specifically to their audiences. So Barstool would be really heavy on the betting stuff. The Ringer, I'm not entirely sure. The Athletic would have a lot of, you know, individual factoids about both teams that are drawn from articles and tidbits of the local beat writers as that's their whole shtick. And so it'd be interesting to watch that just to see how they view their audience and what they think their audience wants in a football broadcast. Yeah. And, and people would say that, okay, well, you're just solving commercialization with more commercialization, but would it not be fascinating to see how the athletic would use the opportunity of having a football game to try to better their own business? Um, It would be fascinating to watch. I mean, what do they, how do they work the, their sales pitch into it. I mean, it's, you know, I think part and parcel of this could be that you get to program all the commercials on it, right? So instead of outside commercials, you get to spend the time talking about your own entity, your own product. So basically you're buying 45 minutes of commercial airtime in addition to an NFL football game. I mean, what kind of price could that bring in, right? Like that's an insane amount of money. So I think that there's a lot of ways to make money by figuring out something, not maybe not NFL films, but NFL films like to create. And maybe you create this from scratch and it's this project that is controlled ultimately by the NFL, correct? But is sold out as this visionary product that creatives can be a part of. We talk so much in sports about connecting with younger audiences and figuring out how to grow the game. And we never see action on experimentalization, true experimentalization, right? We see some stuff around the edges on, on broadcast where they try things out. I mentioned the Nickelodeon um, broadcast earlier, but it's rarely that extreme, right? In order to get new eyes and new people to watch football or baseball, basketball, whatever it is, you need to, you're going to need to be willing to change what you're doing. So I don't, I know that there's probably a lot of downsides. I know that there's probably a lot of red tape, but I also don't have the idea to the point where I want people knocking away, chiseling about telling me why it couldn't work. I think that there's some pretty good bones 
on that old idea uh, once you get under the uh, once you get through the drywall and uh, for people to root around and explore. So the last thing I want to talk to you about is Steve Kerr. Uh, the Warriors coach is upset. Uh, he went on he went on a podcast and he talked about his experience coaching over the last two years. Those last two years have been pretty different in tone and tenor. Two years ago was his last with Kevin Durant and they were unable to win the championship. They lost to the Raptors in the finals. And there was a lot of ego on that team. There was a lot of rumor and innuendo and eventually they did break up. So we knew from the outside that there was probably some compositional problems with that team last year. They were a more cohesive group, but they were much worse on the court. They were not a contender at all. So he went on the podcast and he basically explained his situation and explained it in a way that he didn't think it was being portrayed as Kevin Durant was the problem. He didn't enjoy coaching Kevin Durant. Then that podcast experience got essentially aggregated by a local reporter in the Bay Area who characterized what Kerr said without quoting him directly from the podcast. And I know that's a lot to unpack, but that is the situation. And Kerr was angry that his comments were not presented in full context in the scope of the larger conversation. And, you know, actually finding out the exact truth here is a little bit difficult. I think when I go back through it, I think it's very possible you could walk away saying that he did not really enjoy that last season with Kevin Durant and Kevin Durant could have been the problem. Um, but that's neither here nor there. What I want to talk about is kind of how often this situation can occur in our line of work and just how omnipresent it is to people who do this job that if you do it sloppily or if you don't do it the correct way, you can get thrown into the public eye. And honestly, you would probably deserve it because once you tweet something out, that becomes the narrative and people don't co go back and, and fact check things they see on social media. So I kind of wanted to get your reaction to how this whole ordeal has landed. Well, I'm sort of seeing it as like, uh, I don't know, it's almost like an apple of Eden situation, right? I don't think that the reporter in question deliberately misrepresented what Kerr said in order to create buzz. There's a chance he did, but I don't think he did. I think he just, that's how he read it and then tweeted out the evidence that he felt supported that conclusion, which then got enough traction that Kerr somehow heard about it. And then he goes off in a three minute press conference, unprompted, I might add. He just opened this press conference yelling about this. So I kind of feel bad for him. It's an example of confirmation bias and sort of the danger that comes with it. You listen to something, you have a conclusion that you believe is correct, and then you tweet, and the tweet is really the problem here. If this guy had dedicated an entire article to it, then I don't think Kara would have cared nearly as much because the you know, requisite of writing a 800-word column on it means that you give the total context. But you have the temp there's a temptation to tweet it, and you're like, this is something that I think is very interesting and juicy and then you tweet that supporting evidence but it's that temptation comes back to bite you and it's something that could happen with literally anything it doesn't always have to be confirmation bias and it's not always incorrect but the kind of the hot quote hot tweet sort of complex that permeates sports media this is just i mean maybe the best example i've seen recently 
Yeah, I, I mean, I think that it's it's kind of crazy because what you get out of characterizing what you hear on a podcast with a with a tweet, and I believe the person in question had like thirty five hundred followers, so it's not as though he ever expected this to become a big thing, you know. Um, and that's one of the things that I found so, you know, compelling is. You know, we, we're posting blogs every day and admittedly, we don't consider the magnitude of putting something on the internet before we put it out there. I think that there's a lot of talk. There's, there's, a, dis, there's a disconnect in how much time you take uh, in considering every choice before you publish something on the internet and the fact that something lives on the internet forever in one example, but also can spread erroneously right away. And then there's no way to fix that and to put the toothpaste back in the tube. So I just think it's so interesting that this reporter wasn't getting anything really personally fulfilling out of it. I mean, he was getting some retweets, some likes, maybe some increased visibility, but I don't think he purposely tried to mischaracterize something to make it a bigger deal than it was for his own personal gain. He was just doing it because his job at this point in 2021 requires going through and weighing in on all these situations and providing content almost 24 seven in doing something that almost had no perceivable benefit to himself. And this is what we're going to know this guy for uh, rightly or wrongly, like it's an example. It's an example that you look at where the it shows how thin the line really is. I think in terms of in this job, how quickly things can go awry. If that if the reporter in question had tweeted out an extra line or tweeted something like there were maybe like an extra sentence explaining that the two things he was tweeting were from separate segments, then this could have all been avoided. But instead he tweeted in that particular order with that particular content and suddenly it blows up to the point where Steve Kerr is talking about this, like an NBA head coach is talking about a tweet that went viral to reporters from a guy who probably wasn't even in the room. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's so funny. And then, you know, you look at this thing as kind of like a nesting egg situation, right? He's taking dedicated time out of his availability to bring it up unprompted, like you said, to someone who may not even be there. And it's funny to consider how outside narrative and people on Twitter, I mean, this just came on uh, during the Big Ten tournament. There was that interaction between Juwan Howard and uh, Mark Turgeon. And there was this quote that was sent out by a, a user with maybe a hundred a hundred followers and no affiliation with any type of outlet or even being at the game, uh, simply saying that on TV, you could hear Turgeon saying something pretty incendiary toward, toward Howard. It wasn't true, but yet you had Turgeon in the, in the post game addressing, look, there's this tweet out there. It's not true. So it's funny how we have instant access from everybody, uh, even if they're not on site to control the conversation instead of the questions that the actual reporters on hand want, want to get insight on. It's just, it's kind of reflective of who's really, uh, who's really steering the vehicle at, at, at this point, whether we're giving the public what they want or um, the public only wants that because, uh, you know, because they're creating it. Uh, so I think that there's a lot of conversations to be had there. I want to talk about stuff like this more often on this podcast with the people who work here and the people who work elsewhere, because I think it is valuable for people to 
get a peek behind the curtain and hear about how we decide to do things and why we decide to do it that way. And candidly, I'd like people to know and have the assurance that it's something that we think about uh, day in and day out because the consequences of putting something something out there that's wrong or misleading or could do detriment to someone is not lost on us. So I guess, is it something in your day-to-day life, uh, you can't be hypervigilant about it every single day because that's just not how we operate as humans, but how do you keep yourself accountable uh, so you don't end up in this situation? I mean, keeping yourself accountable in this particular job is not a separate duty from the rest of the duties of the job, you know, just paying attention to detail and making sure you don't willfully misrepresent something for the purpose of, and again, not that the reporter that started this whole conversation was saying this, but people do as the uh, Twitter account that you mentioned with the Juwan Howard thing, willfully misrepresent things in order to create buzz and maybe some publicity for themselves. And so we don't want to do that because we are in the public eye and it's a privilege to be in the public eye. It's a privilege to have this job and be able to write about sports all day. And so part of that day-to-day is just being, making sure you're paying attention to detail. You have the context of anything that's being said and always check the sources, which is something that I have been kind of grew up with almost because of the fact that I'm 25 years old and I grew up in a Twitter age in a different way than most other people in this industry did. And after like when you spend 20 minutes on the internet, you start realizing that like, you know, not everything people say on the internet is true. It was a running joke with me and my friends in high school. It's like, yeah, you t- you're telling me people would go on the internet and just lie. Like, yeah, they do literally all the time. And so carrying over that mindset into a job like this, isn't that hard because that's how I, in my opinion, people should be living all the time is like, and so and to bring it back to kind of your original point, you just, you don't want to be the main character of Twitter that day. And the consequences are shocking if you are at this point in what we understand Twitter to be. If you like misrepresent something or you get something wrong, there will be people coming at your neck about it with some very mean things to say. And while that doesn't impact me all that much because I don't know these people, it's still not fun things to see. So avoiding stuff like that is second nature at this point in this job. Yeah. Uh, but it's, it's, it's interesting. I mean, it's, we are very fallible. Uh, there are choices. I mean, I I would say in my role, I make a thousand choices a day and I don't bat a thousand on them because it's, it's simply not possible. And it's just funny how it's not funny at all. It's, it's really instructive how the biggest mistakes in life can not feel like mistakes at the time or like a big deal at the time you're not even considering them until it's until it's too late and it's just interesting to see um a situation like this because i i think it's it's probably not black and white right it's not like one character in this story is totally the good guy one character is totally the bad guy i think that i think that kerr was a little bit more honest than he intended to be um in in a public forum uh, and, and that tends to happen when someone is speaking uh, extemporaneously uh, off, the t- off the top of their head in a way that it doesn't happen in print. There was a great idea Brian Windhorst shared um, with, I believe, the New York Times. Kevin Draper wrote a piece a few years ago that talked about the difference uh, 
that talked about how these opinion makers handle the process of being aggregated when they're speaking on a podcast or speaking on a radio interview, which is something there'll be multiple posts on the big lead every single day that do this. And what Winhor said essentially was when you're writing, it's kind of black and white. You can edit, you can smooth, you can, you can move your language around. So it says exactly what you want it to say in the way you want to say it. When you're speaking like you and I are doing right now, that's a gray area. So you find yourself when you're talking to someone, you're trying to get your basic point across, but you're kind of like improving and flying blind and you get one take at it. Um, so there are some gray areas and, and lots of open, lots of things are open for interpretation. And then when people aggregate that or write about it online, that's in black and white and you don't hear the tone. You don't hear the, you don't hear the, the context. And oftentimes, even if you really want to, uh, because being fair is really important, even if you really want to give the full context, I mean, you're limited on your space and time about if, what you're going to be able to do for the reader. At a certain point, you're hoping that people are going to go and at least click the link there that you've inserted or, or check out the section of the podcast that you're referencing or double check what else this person has said about, uh, about a topic, but we know that they don't do that. Um, so the conversation really needs to be, if there's anything that can be done uh, for a readership that largely won't read past the headline before weighing in uh, and, and moving the story in a, in a different direction, um, and also if that's even fair for like the, to ask a reader to do, because people are extremely busy. Uh, do we expect them to do deep dive research on every single thing that they do on the internet? Now it would be nice if you're going to give rise to more conversation about that and share it with your take to do a little bit so you can have a more informed take, but I'm talking about people who just see something, put it in their brain and walk away and assume that was the end of the story. Yeah. I mean, the job that we in particular have and the job uh, kind of the space that uh, sports blogs occupy the way I see it is sort of, we are the vehicle between that gray area to the black and white, which emphasizes the responsibility we have to provide a grander context and ensure that anybody who does decide to read past the headline will understand what is being said, why it was said in what manner it was said and who is doing the set. Well, Liam, this has been informative, uh, and I hope uh, I hope you are a regular around here. I really want to the first several podcasts that I did. I think I wanted to take some big swings and try out some interesting projects creatively, and I'm and I'm happy I did them. But one thing I noticed I was missing in them was the general vibe that lets everybody know that, you know what? I like sports. I enjoy watching the games. I enjoy looking at the organizational structure. And I also enjoy the way the media interacts with sports. And then also talking candidly about what it is to do these jobs that we have and what other people in the media are, are, are doing, the challenges they face and try to give kind of like an honest snapshot of where it is, because I think there's a real power in speaking openly about the things that are happening and the things that might happen in the future. And I think by humanize in the attempt to humanize others, it probably helps to humanize yourself and, and the people you work with uh, and, and work alongside 
um, as well. I think that prevent that creates a clear picture for people who truly want to understand, uh, you know, like beyond just their preconceived thoughts of what's going on. Well, woe be to the reader who wants to get inside our heads because it is dark and full of terrors. But for those who are, I hope you enjoyed it. <laughs> the Kyle Coster Show is written by me, Kyle Coster, and my friend Kevin Allen. It is produced by Sean Daly. Art by Kevin Gomez. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.